the kids come up and sing their special. I think they're singing, correct? Okay. If you're able to stand, let's go ahead and look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse, through, uh, verse 1 through 6 here. <clears throat> verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. We're going to talk about the purpose of providence, purpose of the providence of God. I will say this. I would have much more liberty preaching this sermon to a crowd who didn't know me. Because your own personal testimony feels far more fresh when you share it with people who've never heard it. The difficulty with preaching to a a gathering of people who have heard you for years and years, your own personal testimony, I have a hesitancy of sharing it again because my brain says they've already heard it, but it's still real to me. And it may be there's a few people in the house who haven't, but it's real to me, and it defines some things that take place here. It is not the sum total of the sermon by no means, but it will illustrate something that I want to present here. Well, let's pray, and we'll have the kids come up. Father, bless the lesson. Thank you for the word of God. I pray that your spirit would help your people tonight as we study this, the passages of scripture we just read. I pray that you bless the music, help the young people as they sing. We love you. We're thankful for the good testimonies, the refreshment we receive from them when we hear them, and I believe it's good for people to share them. It reminds us of things that we need to be reminded of, that there is a God who is sovereign and who orchestrates events and situations in such a way that bring honor and glory to him and help those who are recipients of this uh, direction. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, you bless all that we do now in the conclusion of this evening. Amen. Okay, testing, is that on? Am I, no? Did I turn it off? Uh, now? Okay. All right. Well, we're going to talk about the uh, 
purpose of the providence of God. George Washington, in 1752, uh, fought in the French-Indian War, and he was following a general by the name of General Braddock. Though he was an American, uh, he, they, at that time, we still suited up with the British. Some of you may be familiar with the story. I think it's amazing. So they go into battle, and the issue with the British at the time they had a certain procedure in the way they fought, and they had not adapted to the American way. Even Washington understood the foolishness of this, but he was such a loyal soldier, he made sure that his troops followed in line with this British commander. And their idea was, you march out in the open, and you expect your enemy to march out in the open, and everybody shoots, and you take turns shooting at each other in, in the open. Well, that was not the American way. Hallelujah. But unfortunately, George Washington was in this, and this would lead to a historical event that was written in our American history books up to 1916. This was in the American history books, and now they've deleted that for some unknown reason because they don't want the presence of God to be honored or acknowledged. Anyways, another subject. So, <clears throat> as they go into battle... In Pennsylvania, the Monenhangi Battle is what it's called, and I probably didn't pronounce that correctly. The Indians have them surrounded in the trees. They cannot see the Indians. There are 1,400 British and American soldiers. There's probably 600 Indians. They're hidden in the trees. The soldiers are in this valley and they get ambushed. And they try to uh, set themselves up for battle. And by the time all was said and done, over 900, almost 1,000 of those soldiers would be put to death. Every, every soldier that was on a horse, every officer that was on a horse, would be shot down except for one, George Washington. As a matter of fact, he would end up manning two different horses. Once all of the British officers were dead and he discovered he was the only one left, he at least got to make the decisions and said, it's time to get out of here. And so they escaped with some three, four hundred, uh, and he's fortunate they, got, they escaped with that many because the Indians were scalping the dead. If they'd have won after them, they probably would have annihilated much more. But he escapes, <coughs> and he discovers he's got four bullet bullets in his, in his uh, 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 clothing that did not penetrate. And he, uh, he tells his mother that it was the providence of God that spared him. Fifteen years later, he's not the president. The Revolutionary War has not taken place. But he and another man are on horseback riding through that same area, reminiscing. At this time, an old chieftain who was there at that battle recognized him. He and a couple of his warriors approach. There's tension, but they discover they come in peace. And that chieftain warrior, through an interpreter, tells him, I come to pay homage to the man who cannot die in battle. 
And then he had this unusual prophecy. He told Washington, he said, we had set our men, 17 soldiers were set to shoot you, and they couldn't kill you. And when we discovered the great spirit was protecting you, we told them to stop. <clears throat> he said, I believe you will, you will be the chief of a great nation. This is what an Indian said before the Revolutionary War. Now that's providence. And so I jump into this particular story with the idea of providence on my mind, but I want to, first of all, begin with the actual events. Elisha approaches the Shunammite woman. The Shunammite woman is the lady that, uh, if you can remember the story, he had passed by her house on numerous occasions. She told her husband, I believe that's a holy man of God. Let's build him a place to stay, a chambers, and uh, give him a bed and a stool, a candle, uh, so that he can get refreshed. Let's take care of him. And so she did that. And then Elisha, as he takes advantage of that kindness, asks his servant, Gehazi, you know, what, is this, what can we do for this woman? And Gehazi said, well, she's never had a, she can't have children. She doesn't have a child. Elisha says, well, I know who can give people children, who, makes, who can make the barren uh, have children. And so Elisha prays. He calls that woman in, and he says, you know, next year you're going to have a child. She doesn't believe, but sure enough, it happens. She has a child. Well, some time passes. The boy grows up, who knows, eight, nine years old, and uh, he gets bumped on the head. He, maybe he's, all, he's sick as well, but uh, he ends up dying. And that Shunammite woman runs to Elisha for help. And Elisha, to cut this short, Elisha goes back to her place, prays, and this boy is raised to life again. She's a believer, trust me. She's convinced Elisha is a man of God. That's the woman we're talking about. Elisha comes to her now and says there's going to be a famine in the land for seven years. Now Elijah had prayed for a three-year famine, and that was pretty severe. But a seven-year famine. Now, we read just last week or a couple weeks ago about how drastic people get during the time of famine. And just to take a peek, look at chapter 6, chapter 6, 2 Kings, and let's look at verse 25, just a reminder of how, how uh, depraved people can get in a famine, how bad things can get. 2 Kings, chapter uh, 6 verse 25 and there was a great famine in Samaria and, and by the way this very well could be the same famine that we're talking about here <clears throat> and there was a great famine in Samaria and behold they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for four score pieces of silver they were paying big money for that to eat and a part of a cab of a dove's dung for five pieces of silver for food and as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord did not help thee, whence shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor, or out of the winepress. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Well, give thy son, that we may eat him. Uh, I don't need to read any more of that. That's historical truth. That's stranger than fiction. 
You talk about depraved human beings, okay? Depraved human But can you imagine the effect of a seven-year famine? So Elisha, no doubt under the leadership of God, goes to this Shunammite woman and says, Lady, you've got to get out of here. There's going to be a famine. It's going to last seven years. Go wherever you can, but don't stay here. Take your family with you. Now, <clears throat> she does that. She responds to that. She ends up landing amongst the Philistines, worshipers of Dagon, the, the, the fish god. Now, Dagon, to learn about him, you've got to go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. But Dagon, uh, they <coughs> depicted him with the body of a man and the head of a fish. Now, I've not seen any Marvel characters that fit that description yet. But nevertheless, that's what Dagon was. They were fishermen, and they worshipped this idol. Interesting stories behind that. Their culture and their practices were absolute heathenism. But she would dwell amongst these people and survive for seven years. Well, when the seven-year button ended, when the time clock of the seven years ended, and who knows, maybe she received word that the famine is over. She returns home. It is obvious, according to the reading, that when she gets home, she discovers somebody is on her property. Or why should, would she cry for it? Somebody has confiscated it. Somebody has possessed it. Some, somebody uh, is living in there, and they don't want to get out. And we don't know all that the reasons. All we know is she is unable in and of herself, to get her property back. And so she goes marching to the king. There's a parable in the New Testament. Jesus talks about this woman who goes to an unjust judge for justice. I wonder if he had her in mind. Because an unjust judge, you don't expect him to treat you well, but Jesus said this unjust judge, in Luke chapter 18, he would answer her petition and give her justice, not because he liked her, but because she wouldn't go away. Now, anyways, while this lady is marching down the road to see the king, there near the royal palace, or even in it, is Gehazi and the king. Now, somebody might say, isn't Gehazi a leper? Well, yeah. Now, the law of the leper was this. There was a social distance in effect, but it didn't mean you couldn't talk to them. And you and I don't know how far along the leprosy on Gehazi had moved. We don't know if it had covered his whole body or if it was just beginning. Either way, the king, out of curiosity, wanted to hear from Gehazi, understanding this man worked with Elisha, the man of God. And so here they are. I don't know if there's a table between them or not. But here they are with some dialogue. And the king is inquiring about, tell me some of the things that Elisha has done. And Gehazi is telling these stories. No doubt, uh, uh, Gehazi's talking about Naaman the leper. And Gehazi, uh, that's going to be personal, uh, Gehazi's talking about uh, 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 healing the bitter water, the poisonous waters. Gehazi's talking about uh, 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 just numerous miracles. And then Gehazi says, oh yeah, let me tell you about this Shunammite woman. She couldn't have children. 
and Elisha told her, you're going to have children, and she, wanted, she was able to have a child. But that's nothing. About seven years later, the child died. And that woman comes crying to Elisha for help, and Elisha shows up. He prays over this child, and the child raises from the dead. And as Gehazi is sharing the story, he looks up, and here she comes into the palace. Now, is that an accident, or is that providence? I mean, that's divine providence there. And Gehazi looks, and he looks at the king, and he says, there's the woman. Now, that's validation for you. There she is. And the king says, well, come here, lady. And then the king, almost as though he's not sure if he believes Gehazi, inquires from the woman, is this true? I wonder if he asked about all the stuff, because I'm sure Elisha had told, they they'd had conversation as he stayed at the house. And this woman says, it is true. I was unable to have a child. And yes, when I did have a child, that child ended up dying later on. And yes, Elisha came, prayed, and God raised that child to life. That's the truth. And here's the child. Did you catch it in the reading? There's the woman and her son. Accidents or providence? Now let's pull out some lessons from this initially. Just some quick lessons as I zero in. This is not a long message, so don't worry. First of all, though, we need to understand that God's warnings are God's graces. God's warnings are God's graces. When God presses the warning button on your heart to remove yourself, friend, uh, you need to remove yourself. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Uh, by the way, uh, sometimes to remove yourself is the only way to improve yourself. And that was the case for this dear lady. This is not the place for you. Now, he didn't give her a clear instruction as to where to go. He said, wherever you can go but here. What he's saying is, Famine is coming here, and it's going to be really bad. And I don't know about you, but I know there have been seasons in my life where God has warned me either for things that I know I shouldn't be doing or things I shouldn't venture into. Are you with me? And when the Spirit of God is saying, I give you no peace for that, the Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. I, I remember I had a young man in our youth group that'd come to me and say, Brother Merv, Brother Merv, Brother Merv. A lot of times he'd come to me and I said, Well, what? He said, Well, I forgot. But he'd come to me and he'd say, He'd say, Brother Merv, I feel like doing such and such a thing, but I'm not sure. What do you think? I remember my, my constant answer was this. Do you have peace? I mean, I'm not your judge. You're living for God. Do you have peace? Let the peace of God rule in your heart. You're looking for a new place of employment? And it's not wrong if you leave your job and go to another place? Well, do you have peace? I mean, there might be some other factors involved. Is it going to relocate you and your family? Is it going to remove you from your local church? 
Is it going to put you in a place where, well, we don't, we're not really going to have a local church around here? Well, that might, I might have you think that through a little bit more, okay? Unless God's calling you to a ministry there to start one. See, the reality is, I remember hearing one preacher say this, and to be quite honest, I agree. Every Christian is either called to help the preacher in the church or start a church. That sounds pretty bold. But what did Jesus do? He established churches. And it takes his people getting together. I know that's a very bold statement, but I feel secure saying it. So, uh, God's warnings are his graces. Uh, when God, okay, I've got to move on here. Number two, obedience to God is far less painful than disobedience. Now, let's consider this. Can you imagine this Shunammite woman? Here she is in the land of Israel. This is God's land. This is the land God gave his people. But on the authority of the man of God, which means she's receiving the word of God, she is getting counsel to leave for a while and go somewhere, anywhere. Just don't stay here. And she lands in the, Phil- in, in the land of the Philistines. <clears throat> now, that couldn't have been comfortable. Hello? She was a godly lady. Here she is amongst the worshipers of Dagon, beating their drums. Uh, who knows when the, what they did in their worship services? Who knows the weird chants that she would listen to? Who knows the culture that she was involved in? And by the way, she had a boy. She brought family with her. And she's bringing... It couldn't have been comfortable is what I'm saying. But it was far more comfortable in the will of God there than outside of the will of God where she was. See, sometimes we get in our head, you know, if I obey God, that could cost me. It'll cost you a whole lot more if you don't. It may cost you your integrity. It may cost you your character. It'll certainly cost you your testimony if it costs you those other two things. And if it costs you those other two things, it'll cost you your influence with your children for God and your family for God and your friends for God. And though they may like you as a buddy, as a pal, as a, as a relative, uh, come eternity as they're on one side of eternity and they realize they're sentenced to hell and here you were a born-again Christian who hid your witness because you didn't want to obey God you chose to dis- disobey to fit in and they're looking at you thinking you knew all along and you didn't tell me right. and now I'm bound for hell I believe God's going to let us see that stuff ladies and gentlemen I do that's why the Bible says he's going to have to wipe away our tears So anyways, disobedience to God is far less painful than disobedience. I'll give you another example. In Jeremiah, most of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is warning two kings of Jerusalem, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. God told him to preach this message. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and allow yourselves to be taken captive. Because the sins of the prior kings have gone too far, there's no turning back. I am judging this land. Well, that was uncomfortable. Those kings didn't want to surrender, and by the way, they didn't. They didn't. Zedekiah, one of the last kings before the 
final captivity, Zedekiah was warned. He heard the word. That's a scary thing. He had to believe that God would be true to his word, that if he surrendered, everything would be all right. He had to believe that. Because Nebuchadnezzar and his forces were vicious. They were vicious when they conquered a people. But if they surrendered, God said, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to go to Babylon. And you're going to live in Babylon, not as Babylonians, but you're going to live there. And if you look to me, I'll be a sanctuary for you in Babylon. That's what he says in Jeremiah. Now, obedience was uncomfortable. And there weren't a lot of people that obeyed. But look what disobedience did. And all you've got to do is read this. You read Jeremiah 40 through 52, you, you'll see it. Zedekiah says, I can't do it, I can't do it. Jeremiah had told him the consequence if he doesn't. He would see his own children executed before his very eyes, and then he'd have his own eyes taken out, and then he would be executed in Babylon. He would see that with his very own eyes if he disobeyed. Guess what happened? That's exactly what happened. So I ask you, was disobedience more comfortable to Zedekiah than obedience? Absolutely not. Now, would, have, would obedience have been uncomfortable? Absolutely. You're being uprooted. A king. You had it all in Jerusalem. And now you're going as a captive. Treated treat like an, uh, a civilian. Almost a pauper. But you're alive and you got your family with you. And God said he'd be a sanctuary to you. Anyway, by the way, uh, the condition of our country... I talked to a brother just yesterday about this. Our country needs judgment. I understand that. I understand it. My hope is that the people of God, and I believe this, the people who truly seek God, in spite of the judgment that comes to this country, the people who truly seek God are going to see God take care of them and God work on their behalf and God use them and God give them grace. Now, may you, uh, could it be you could use some lose some comforts that you have right now? Oh, very well, could happen. But God, you won't lose him, the comforter. Oh, no, not at all. Obedience to God is always far less painful than disobedience. Hey, Jonah, what do you think? Number three. This is, this is Lester Roloff here. Where God leads, he feeds. Hey, uh, dear Shunammite, there's going to be a famine. You've got to leave your garden, your crops, the local markets. You've got to leave, leave all the comforts that you've had here, and you've got to get out of here, Elisha says. I'm warning you. You go find some other place, but don't stay here. And so she goes, and she takes her family. And I'm sure she was a, a virtuous woman, so she wasn't afraid of work. What I do know is this. For seven years, she lived in the amongst the Philistines, and apparently she didn't die of starvation. Are you with me? Apparently she was fed. Her family was fed. They were cared for. I wonder how that, how'd that take place. Well, there's no doubt. God will take care of you when you do what you're supposed to do. I guarantee he didn't bless a lazy behavior. But I believe that she did what she could, and God took care of her. 
God will always provide for his people, always when we're obeying him, when we follow his lead. In her case, it was getting out. In many of our cases, we know exactly where God's leading. For Elijah, God says, Elijah, I want you to go down to the brook uh, Cherith, I can't remember the name of it. I want you to go down to that particular brook and you hang out there till the water runs dry. And so he goes down there, drinks the water, and while he's there, ravens start delivering bread. And so uh, he's being fed by these ravens. Well, once the water runs dry, God says, okay, now you need to go to this widow lady in Zarephath, and uh, she's going to take care of you. And so he shows up. And he has to do some convincing, but sure enough, he's taken care of there. God always uh, feeds where he leads. He always provides where he guides. Fourth, and here we go. Providence favors the faithful. Providence favors the faithful. As we come back to the conclusion of this story, she arrives in the king's presence just as he has heard her name. Wow. We see this throughout the scripture. How God in his providence reveals his goodness. And by the way, time will always prove God right, whether you believe it or not. Time will always reveal the truth. Hey, Joseph, don't worry about what they're saying about you while you're in jail. I know they're calling you a a rapist and they're calling you all kinds of... But Joseph, it'll all come out here in just a couple years. Just, you stay true to God. Stay true to God. Hey, David, I know you're being slandered, but you just stay true to God. Time is going to reveal this, and God is going to bring to the surface your character and his favor for you. So she shows up, and what did this experience do? What did this providential act that we read about, what was this purpose? What did it do? Three things real quickly. First of all, let's consider the woman. Can you imagine the comfort and encouragement she received when she arrives and discovers they've been talking about her? And not only have they been talking about her, the king says, you're going to get everything that you lost and the potential uh, growth and fruit that would have been there while you were gone. You're going to get that too. It's yours on the authority of the king. Can you imagine the, that's what, you know, when you see God do a work in your life like that, it encourages you. It ought to comfort you. It ought to strengthen your faith that God is with me. And if God be for me, who can be against me? What great comfort that is. It did something else. I think it did something for Gehazi. Now remember, I used to throw Gehazi under the bus. I really did. I mean, come on, buddy. You, uh. You let greed get you, and now you got leprosy. But here's the thing about old Gehazi. Because he's, he's not a whole lot different than a lot of us. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'll guarantee you, if I said, how many of you still bear the scars of sin in your life, would you raise your hand? I bet it'd be quite a few people in the house. We bear the scars of our sin. We carry it with us. But it doesn't mean we have to continue to live in sin. 
And it doesn't mean we cannot give God glory now. And it doesn't mean we can't go back to being a witness. I'm serious. I used to throw Gehazi under the bus, and I got to thinking about that. What was he doing there? He was witnessing for the king. That had to have encouraged him. She showed up right while I was talking about her. Wow. Don't you think God did something in Gehazi's heart? i got to believe that. I mean, just human reasoning would think. Here you are talking about somebody in a good way, and you're bragging on something that you witnessed in their life, and here they come showing up to validate the truth that you just shared. Hello, talk to me, class. And then finally, what did this providential act do? It was a witness to the king. God knows how to get his witness into high places and low places. God knows how to get his witness in places that it's very difficult for the average Christian to get to. But God, in his sovereignty, uses two ordinary people to validate an extraordinary event and to validate his almighty power before a king who has been godless. You know that king had to come to the conclusion the God of Elijah, he is the God. He is the God. Now that's powerful stuff. I know in my own personal life, and for the two people in the room that may have never heard it, well, maybe you all forgot it. I always feel uncomfortable sharing it. But the reason I bring it up is this. Twice in the past week, I had people ask me my testimony. And I thought, well, that's interesting. One of them I shared it with years and years ago. Maybe they were just wanting to create conversation and be nice to me. But anyways, that's a way to do it. Because everybody likes to talk about themselves. At least we like to talk about what God's done for us. And so... I gave them the cliff note version in both cases. Surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus Christ in 1986. My mission, my attempt, my objective was to visit the United States. One year prior, I had received cassette tapes of a man named Jack Hiles. I would listened to this preaching, and it interested me. So I desired, as I was heading out west... Here I came from northern Michigan. I hitchhiked down south, stayed with my mother two weeks. The timing was unusual, amazing. The Lord let me get sick for a week. It was amazing. But anyways, I stayed there longer than I planned, but finally was able to step out near the on-ramp of the 8090 uh, toll road. You're not supposed to hitchhike on the toll road, so you do it right before. And so I'm waiting along, and this red Toyota pickup truck comes by, and had my Rand McNally map out, and I just memorized Romans 8.28. And the fellow says, where are you headed? It's Saturday night, sun's going down. I remember it in my brain today. You ask if the Lord lets me keep my mind, I'll tell you the exact same story until the day I die. And so <clears throat> uh, I said, well, I'm going to this place called Hammond, Indiana, and I took my map. He says, that's where I'm going. I may not mean anything, but we were about 120 miles away. I thought, really? You're going to Hammond? He said, that's where I live. I said, 
okay. <laughs> so I threw my backpack and stuff in the back of his truck, and I jumped in. I remember distinctly uh, all my power bars fell out. Well, anyways, little, there are little things in the story that I still remember, too. But we get in the truck. He takes me into Hammond. I asked him if he could point out the church, if he'd heard of it. He said he's heard of it, and he pointed it out to me. He took me to a Best Western. I'm skipping a lot for those of you that have heard it. And he takes me to a Best Western. I think, well, this is awesome. Tomorrow morning, I got two, two nights, Saturday night, Sunday night, so that I go to both services and get back on the road on Monday. I was 19. I had $300 cash in my pocket. And I was living for God. And I planned to go to church every, time, every Sunday and I was going to be the best witness I could be and learn my Bible, read my Bible. That was my plan. And so Sunday morning arrives. I catch a ride down to the church, and the church, it sits 6,000 people. You remember, you, April, Mike have been there. 6,000 people, okay, an auditorium. My whole town would fit in this church. My whole town would. I'm from a little bitty town the size of Thorntown. That's where I grew up. Lebanon was the big city in my brain, okay? <clears throat> Anyways, the Lord broke me of all that by living in Detroit for a while, in Chicago for a while. But, so I, uh, I show up, and uh, Brother Paul, I probably, as I walked into the sanctuary, I sat about where you were, are to the pulpit, because, you know, a church that size, you don't want to be too close. <laughs> that's scary for this old country kid. That's scary. But I didn't want to be too far back, too. I wanted to catch the show. It was a novelty to me to see a church this big, you know, this many people that love God. And so I sat back, and I mean, people are crowding in. And by the way, Paul, there were still another hundred rows behind you, it seemed like, okay? So I sit back, and I'm looking behind me, and I'm seeing crowds, and I'm looking beside me, seeing crowds. And Oh, the death section. I wasn't that far from the death section, okay? I, to give you guys an idea where I sat. And so they had a big balcony that was packed out. It's Sunday morning. I remember the sermon. The sermon was, you're not so hot yourself. That was the sermon he preached. So <clears throat> I knew that, man. I was like agreeing the whole time. And so I sit back there, and I'm telling you, the very man that told me about that place, I'd never heard of First Baptist or Jack Hiles until I met this guy named Cal Streeter a year earlier at my mother's church in Michigan. And he uh, happens to be visiting the very day I'm passing through. Accident or providence? Man, he looked at me. I looked at him. I said, do you remember me? Merv McNair, see me after church. I said, okay. He took me out to lunch, Chinese restaurant, egg drop soup, nasty. Asked me if I had thought about Bible college. I said, uh, no. <laughs> it had been just a month since I had been in the world. He said, but I, I said, uh, he asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm planning on going to Montana. And this was August. <laughs> and then I'm going out to California. He says, if I got you a place to stay for a week, would you pray about this? And the Lord just kept saying, uh, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love me and to them who are the called according to my purpose. 
I just memorized that. I'd never heard a preacher preach that. I'd never heard a Christian quote that. Never heard. I just happened to find it on my own in my Bible reading, so I'm claiming it as mine. I don't care if it's everybody's favorite memory verse. I kept thinking, well, Lord, there's no doubt you've allowed all this to take place. I said, yeah, I'll stay and pray. So for one week, I visited the school. I met Dennis Hood. You, he was here this past spring or the, earlier. And I met a few other guys. And after the week, we met. He said, what do you think? I said, Dr. Streeter, I'd go here. I would go here if they'd let me. But I also, I don't have money. And I really don't have the clothing. He says, you do now. And I felt bad. I didn't want to take it. I honest to goodness didn't want to take it. It's uncomfortable. But there was no doubt in my brain, my heart, the Lord was saying, oh no, you need to do this. So he paid my first school bill, got me a job. I worked, I was there three years. I look back, I'm thankful for the providence of God. I'm thankful for the providence, providential favor. And I believe in all my heart that every time God does the work of providence in your life, there's a great purpose. And if we pay attention, if we pay attention, if we're looking for the Lord, I'm telling you, God is orchestrating things often. There are no accidents in the Christian life. Zero. And if you look to give him glory and honor, he'll open up the way. He'll direct you. And all the ways acknowledge me. And he will direct your path, he says. Father, bless the message. Thank you for your word. May the Spirit of God help us. Thank you for this story that still ministers to us. I pray, Lord, that everybody in the room would feel hope and encouragement as they hold your word in their hand, knowing that this can dictate events for your glory and for our good. I pray, Lord, you'd bless our invitation. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Brother Brian. Him 300, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way.